Rebecca, can you believe we are nearly halfway through this year? Oh, my God. When you put it like that, no. I hadn't thought about it like that at all. Wow. It is a wow. It's a big wow. 2022 is flying away from us, and we are now officially in the month of May. And I think although on some levels it feels like this year has gone in the blink of an eye, when I stop to actually reflect on everything that has happened so far in 2022, there has been a lot. Yeah, we've had the cost of living crisis, we've had the ongoing challenges of the pandemic as government restrictions were lifted, finally getting a new charity minister and a commission chair, and the return of live events and in-person working. It's been a lot, right, and if you're a fundraiser, there are no shortage of challenges to come. Finding new channels to connect with supporters, grappling with the digital landscape and, of course, operating in that increasingly hostile political environment, a personal favourite of us on this podcast. (laughs) But if this is the sort of thing you are thinking about, then you might enjoy Third Sector's fundraising conference, a two-day virtual event taking place this month. That's right. Our 2022 fundraising conference is running on the 26th and the 27th of May, where we will be joined by a host of brilliant speakers bringing inspiration and practical solutions to your fundraising challenges. It's a fantastic opportunity to network, debate and learn from your colleagues. Right. And we'll also be sharing more about an exciting new podcast spin-off project. Um, (laughs) mm, I'm afraid I can't say more at this point, but if you are a fan of this podcast and that sounds intriguing, do come along to find out more and join in the discussion. It will be 100% worth it. You can find out more about our digital conference at thirdsectorfundraisingconference.co.uk. Rebecca and I will look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing Vision for Volunteering, an initiative set up to explore how volunteering could and should change over the next 10 years. Rebecca's going to chat to Maddie Desforge, Chief Executive of NAVCA, about what the project aims to achieve. And in this month's Good News Bulletin, we've got a charity shop find, which can truly be said to be vintage, and the story of how a 50p phone card raised almost a million dollars for charity. But first, this month saw the launch of Vision for Volunteering, a collaboration between the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, the local infrastructure body NAVCA, the Association of Volunteer Managers, Sport England and Volunteering Matters. The project aims to provoke a conversation about what volunteering needs to look like by 2032 and what needs to change over the next 10 years. The group kicked off this project by speaking to 300 different organisations and setting out an opening statement of what the sector's vision for volunteering could be. It identified five key themes for the sector to focus on. These were awareness and appreciation, power, collaboration, experimentation and equity and inclusion. The statement said that people, not processes, need to be at the heart of charities' volunteering programmes. It also called for a future where volunteering is further ingrained in the collective psyche, is part of everyone's life, and in which it's always easy to find ways to make a difference. To find out more about the initiative and how charities can get involved, I spoke to Maddie Deforge, the Chief Executive of the Infrastructure Umbrella Body, NAVCA. Maddie, thank you very much for joining us. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about what prompted the Vision for Volunteering project? Yeah, of course, and thank you for having me. And so we all know through COVID, our lives changed. It changed the lives of volunteers and it changed, I think, how we see and work with and are volunteers right across the country. 
we saw a huge rise and response to the pandemic. We had 12.4 million people volunteer for the first time, which is just amazing. But we also know that some people stopped volunteering because of the lockdowns, because of their positions changed. And so we we're having conversations that made us want to look at what and how, as a country, we can work with volunteers, that we can tackle issues, that we could do something broader. So we started thinking about communities and how volunteers make communities tick. That's religious communities, cultural communities, all sorts of different places. And we know that volunteering really enhances those communities as people get to know each other, as they work together on things they care about. It really drives positive change and quality of life. So we really want to try to harness that and think about how we could create a really exciting um, way forward to build on where we are in volunteering in this country over the next 10 years. And that by working with a really broad base, by thinking 10 years ahead, we could really um, think about the change we want to see and importantly, how we bring it about. Brilliant. As you say, so many things have changed and we're having to really rethink our positions on a lot of things as a result of the pandemic. So the opening statement that the project put out identified five key themes for the sector to focus on. So awareness and appreciation, power, collaboration, experimentation and equity and inclusion. Would you be able to say a little bit more about those and lay out in some more detail what the sector needs to be looking at? Yeah, I think it's important to go back a step first and think about the overall vision. So what we wanted us to do wasn't to set out a formulaic action plan for what we want to happen, but we rather wanted to think about volunteering as a movement and how we could make that movement more diverse, more innovative, more ambitious, more person-centred. So at the start of the process, we were thinking about volunteering almost in sectors or topics. So thinking about young people volunteering or volunteering around climate change. And what came through in the process, we, we worked with 350 or so organisations, was that we needed to be further reaching and think differently about how we um, divide up volunteering if we're really going to get to a place where in 10 years' time we're reaching the full potential of what volunteers can do in this country. So we wanted to think about what volunteering needs to look like, how volunteers think about their roles, rather than be more mechanistic about it. So it was bringing that out and embedding it into a vision which felt really important and how we got at those five themes, thinking about the volunteers themselves rather than the process and the output, and they really need to be at the heart of the volunteering experience and thinking about their motivations and experiences and their skills and how they can be developed, as well as the needs of organisations and of society to make sure we're linking individual motivations with the needs of communities. So the first one that came out of that, I say the first theme, was awareness and promotion. So how do we make sure that volunteering is really ingrained in our collective psyche as a country? It's already really in there, but how can we build on it? How can we make it more so so it's part of everyone's life? And it's easy to find a way to make a difference. And it's expected that we all volunteer from childhood, not continually, not in the same place. It can come and go. We can volunteer in different settings, in different purposes, as we go through different stages of our life. But that kind of expectation is the norm. So the awareness and promotion point is really building that in to all sorts of places across society so that we all want to, are able to, feel empowered to volunteer and that we appreciate what volunteers do for us and how it enhances our collective lives by having people volunteering in the community. The second theme around power can be quite a difficult word sometimes. Some people can flinch away from power in the context of volunteering. 
We want volunteers and communities to recognise the power that they hold, to take control of what's happening around their lives so that everybody engages in their community and builds a future that they want to see. And that sense of social action and movement and making decisions from volunteers, which then has a much wider ripple effect. But like a really important thing is that 10-year vision of where does the power lie and how can we distribute power more equally, perhaps, so that different people can access it and, and do the things that matter. The third theme around equity and inclusion is an obvious one. We had to think about how volunteering is accessible and welcoming to everybody everywhere and that the benefits of volunteering are equally distributed. And we know that volunteering benefits the volunteer as well as the service or the cause that they're volunteering for. So how do you make people want to volunteer? How do you make sure that it's welcoming, that people have the support to volunteer when and where they want to, and it really enables people to do that? The fourth theme around collaboration. So we know that um, when people come together, they can do great stuff. We know that collaboration needs to be fluid, flexible, spontaneous to have greatest impact. Collaboration needs support, it needs to be nurtured. We need to recognise again the value of it to really get the best out of it. Mm. And then the fifth area around experimentation, again, is an area which can be a bit double-edged. When funders want to fund innovation, you sometimes think, well, why do you fund what works? So it's not experimentation at the cost of what we know what works, but rather thinking about a volunteering environment which is dynamic, where we think about what can be done differently that we're looking and developing local solutions, that we're learning about what works and is effective. Not just be a temporary bolt-on at times of crisis like COVID, but how we can, again, embed it and take it forward through all of our lives. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot there to kind of chew over. And there's almost a kind of utopian vision there of what volunteering in its best form could be. How far are we from kind of meeting some of the ideals laid out in that vision, do you think, as a sector? So this isn't about saying that we are miles from this vision. And it was deliberately rather utopian. That's the beauty of being able to set a vision rather than an action plan. So really, where do you want to get to in 10 years' time? And what are the key characteristics of that? Where might it look to? And the vision um, document on the website deliberately talks about how it feels as much as the mechanisms and, and how we get there. So rather than thinking about how far away we are, I think it's about where we want to get to. As a sector, we achieved a huge amount through the pandemic. We developed significantly. It's really been recognised as the importance of volunteers and how we step up. But what next and where next is the next piece. I think how far away we are will vary from place to place. Some places will be up there in terms of really experimenting with volunteering and being at the forefront of pushing forward how we engage with volunteers. Some places will be really up there in recognising volunteers and what they're about. But I think by setting that vision, it um, creates a framework that we can aspire to and develop right across the country, taking the best from different places. So the short answer, I think, is how far are we? And um, it's different in different places on different aspects of the vision. But we were really keen to be aspirational to want to take it forward. And when you say places, do you mean kind of organisations or are we talking sort of geographical locations as, as being sort of the, the deciding factor here? It could be different for different aspects of volunteering as to how and where people come together and how they collaborate and how they, they develop their skills and offer their time. OK, now that, that makes sense. And 
as you were saying earlier, we want volunteering to be accessible and welcoming to everyone. Mm. Where is that not happening at the moment? And what are some of those barriers that are sort of stopping it being accessible to everyone, do you think? And so we know we need to do better on accessibility. I think that through COVID, we saw some aspects of accessibility increase because people had more flexibility in time and where they volunteered. We saw some areas of accessibility decrease because people were either shielding, they didn't want to come together face to face. They changed how they lived their lives. So I think what's important is as we develop new approaches, as we think about how we embed volunteering in society, that we learn from all of that and we think about how we can do better. We need to be where people are at and think about the mechanisms to support people to do what they want to do. It goes back to that notion of volunteers and movement of social action. So how can we facilitate what needs to be in place for people to take action on the things that matter for them and that people are welcomed. They see themselves right across the volunteering spectrum. They see a way in and they know that they'll be welcomed. There's different aspects of inclusion. So we think about physical inclusion. So can I get access to the place? Have I got the skills? Will a volunteering opportunity help me to develop the skills and connections I need to get in? Digital inclusion. So are we excluding people by how volunteering opportunities are developed? But I think more than anything else, it's about having a range of people with different perspectives and different volunteering opportunities. So there's the capacity across the sector to develop good volunteering programmes to support people where that's needed, to work with people to figure out what they want to do and the best way or the, the most effective way for them of doing that. The vision also talks about the need for innovation in volunteering. And as we've said, like we have been made to do things very differently in lots of different spheres over the last couple of years just because of necessity. What could innovation in volunteering actually kind of concretely look like, though? So in a way, I don't want to say what I think innovation looks like, because that would narrow the scope of it. I think what's important in the vision is that we welcome innovation. I think what's important is that we don't throw away the good stuff that works, that we've been working on for the last 5, 10, 15 years. But we take that with us, but also that we bring in different perspectives to think what different might look like. And they were open to ideas coming forwards and don't say, that won't work because, or we tried it 10 years ago and it didn't work then because. It's about what volunteers are doing, how they're doing it, where they're doing it. And it's in how those different aspects are brought together, I think we get to innovation. But I think the key point for me is about having an open mind and being forward looking at where we want to get to and then looking at the best way of doing that. With that sort of looking forward hat on, thinking about the future, the organisations that make up the vision for volunteering have been very clear that what's been produced so far is really only the beginning. So what's next for this project? So we deliberately didn't want to publish a finalised plan. And this is very much the start of a conversation. We set out a vision around creating a diverse, innovative, ambitious approach to volunteering. We set that out on the website. So we need people to, to commit to it, to engage with it. We've had more than 5,000 people coming onto the website since we launched at the end of last week, which is fantastic. So I think people are engaging. And there's an immediate call, which is to sign up to the Vision website and to make a pledge. We need to work with that wider audience to develop the commitments and pull them together. So we've got some more work to do to look at what does that definitively look like. We've not got a blueprint at the moment. We kind of want to have those conversations and engage with people so that over the next 12 months or so, we work up more of a plan 
this isn't a strategy which sits on a shelf and gathers dust. It's very active. It will change and morph over time. But by pulling together the commitments, by pulling together the responses and the reactions that people have had to the vision, we can work up that next chapter in the book. It's almost like we've written the first chapter and the last chapter. So this is where I'm starting from. This is where I want to get to. So now we can write those middle chapters of the book about how we get there. So really welcome people coming on that journey, getting involved and uh, bringing their thoughts to the table. Because if learning succeeds, if we um, listen to, work with and bring together that wide range of views. Yeah, so crucially, you are needing other organisations, other people within the sector to get involved. How can they do that then? So first of all, go to the website and sign up. Secondly, make pledges and make commitments as to how you will deliver, develop, inform those five themes. And then we will come back with more information about the process from here in terms of pulling it together and how we're going to bring in that wider group of people. Brilliant. And what's the website address? The website is www.visionforvolunteering.org.uk. Brilliant. And I'll make sure that goes in the show notes and the story that goes with the podcast as well. But just for listeners, if they happen to be sitting at a computer, I just want to type that in straight away. Maddie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have the conversation. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. So, Emily, what have you got for us? Well, it's another charity shop story this week, and it's quite unusual that we would run two charity shop stories in a row. But this one I just absolutely fell in love with, and it is a charity shop story from overseas as well. So it's from America, where an antiques dealer named Laura Young bought an old bust, you know, one of those big statue head things from a charity shop in Texas. So I don't know if you are in the business of marble busts, very niche (laughs) question. But this sort of thing is really in vogue at the moment because you can go to somewhere like Urban Outfitters and you can get a sort of faux marble bust for like a decent price. Or Etsy, I did do some research, have a very niche one of Matthew McFadden playing Mr Darcy circa 2005 Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) And that retails at a cool £65. So I don't know, is that the sort of thing that you might keep on your bookshelf? I mean, I feel like Pride and Prejudice bust, yes. And I love Matthew McFadden. I think he's a fantastic actor. I think he was quite miscast as Mr. Darcy. Uh, A controversial opinion. So I'm not sure I would have that iteration. So Matthew McFadden or Mr. Darcy, yes. Those two things, no. People had a very funny thing about Matthew McFadden, didn't they, in 2005? Not Colin Firth. Not in my opinion. Having watched the 1990s one on VCR, no less. Oh, wow. It didn't quite do it for me. But regardless, if you want... Matthew McFadden as Mr Darcy, cast in Marble. You can get it on Etsy. Are we getting paid for that advert? <laughs> no, that's not sponsored content. That's, that's genuinely authentic. To go back to Laura yes. in Texas, she had a real find on her hands here and she paid $34.99 or around £28 for this white marble sculpture and she took it home in the passenger seat of her car and she seatbelted it in in the back. And she wanted this bust because she thought the head looked quite Roman and it seemed to be pretty old. If that's your interior deco spec, then Mm -hmm. why not? Well, in fact, it turns out it was about 2,000 years old. In fact, this bust is thought to actually depict Sextus Pompey, a Roman military leader who died in 35 BC. It is a bona fide piece of Roman artwork. 
Sextus Pompey. Rebecca, do you know anything about him? As it happens, um, <laughs> I know how to Google. So uh, Sextus had a colourful existence before he was brutally and apparently illegally executed at the ripe old age of 32. So average life expectancy during the Roman Empire was 33. Is that because they kept executing everybody? Presumably. <laughs> He was the younger son of the Roman general Pompey the Great and known in some circles as a pirate king. Ooh. Yeah, so that's exciting. He spent big chunks of time outlawed from Rome, living both in Spain and in his later years made a living terrorising Sicily and the coast of Italy, as you do. It's all in a day's work. So according to Lindsay McAlpine, who is a postdoctoral curatorial fellow and a Roman art specialist at the San Antonio Museum, she estimates that this bust of Sextus was made somewhere between the late 1st century BC and the early 1st century AD. Apparently it was listed as being part of the art collection of Bavaria's King Ludwig I in 1833. And it was on display in the German town of, I'm going to try and say this, Aschaffenburg. I have no idea if I got that right or not, but that's where it was. Apologies to any German listeners. Yes, sincere apologies for that. But then in January 1944, the town was bombed by the Allies and the building housing the collection was seriously damaged. The bust then disappeared and has now somehow resurfaced in Texas. We don't quite know how this happened, but there's a possibility that it was looted and brought home by an American soldier. So Laura is now just enjoying a bona fide piece of actual Roman 2,000-year-old marble. It's just in her hallway. Is that what's, what's happening? Uh, no, I think she's a little better than that. So Laura has, in fact, now partnered up with an international art lawyer and she's putting arrangements in place to have the bust returned to the Bavarian administration of palaces, gardens and lakes. But in the meantime, Sextus Pompey will be on loan at the San Antonio Museum of Art in Texas until May next year. So if you're passing through Texas... Anytime soon, Rebecca, you can go and look at a really, really unique charity shop find. Amazing. And I will actually pop a link to this in the story on our website for the podcast because there's a fantastic photo with this story that is just this bust strapped into the front seat of this woman's car, kind of with the price sticker still on his cheek, just looking like a little a little annoyed at her choice of song on the radio or something. He just looks a bit put out by the whole thing. I and think if Sextus Pompey photo. were alive, he probably would be a little put out at being bought for £28 and then strapped <laughs> into the back of a woman's car. Maybe not. I mean, who knows? Yeah. There's, there's something for everyone, isn't there? <laughs> Rebecca, do you have a story for us this week? Yes, so I've got an online fundraising campaign for a little-known charity in Egypt which ended up raising a million dollars, or around £800,000, from a mobile phone card with just 54 cents, or 43 pence, on it. I'm intrigued. Tell me more. So a young woman who asked to remain anonymous sent a text message in response to an Eid fundraising campaign by the Mersal Foundation, which has become a lifeline for thousands of Egyptians unable to pay for medical care. So this young woman sends in a text message to the fundraising campaign saying, I want to donate to the premature babies you take care of, but I don't have money. I only have an unused top-up card and I want to donate it. So the card had 10 Egyptian pounds, or 54 cents on it, in credit from the mobile phone network Vodafone Egypt. And the donor said that whoever wanted it could have it in return for making a payment to the charity. 
This is a lovely gesture and I'm really here for it, but really I want to know how did they get from 43 pence to 800,000 pounds and is this the sort of trick that one can replicate at home? Oh yeah, absolutely. You just put the phone card under your pillow, make a wish and go to sleep <laughs> on it. Uh, under, uh, at a full moon, yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, no, so Heba Rashed, who's the founder and CEO of the charity, immediately announced an online auction for the top-up card, urging corporations to contribute to the fundraising campaign. Donations began trickling in and the campaign sparked national interest on social media, trending under the hashtag, the most expensive top-up card in Egypt. Right. And yes, it was kind of this sort of thing of just, this is, we are fundraising. It's very nakedly, we're fundraising. Please just give us the money for this card. The fundraising campaign went viral after Vodafone Egypt promised to match the total donations made by the end of the day. Oh, good job, Vodafone Egypt. Right. Good for you. So it is estimated that the campaign raised about a million dollars or £800,000 in just a day. Fantastic. So uh, Ms. Rashed told the BBC, I was extremely happy to see the donations hit Mersel's account. I wanted the young woman to feel happy regardless of how much she had donated. I expected the auction to yield a few thousand pounds, but the result was astonishing. So the plan is to use the money to purchase 17 more incubators for premature babies and to open new units across the country. So that phone card really went a long way. That is a great story with much needed funding going to a very worthy cause. So we love to see it. Keep that good news coming, everyone. We do indeed. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Till then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Maddie Desforge, and our producer, Joe Walker, at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. <laughs>